City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Limits. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. And the time is 9.03. And maybe you're listening on the website, 3cr.org.au. Well, maybe. Um, yeah, and it's... Oh. Uh, my mic doesn't seem to be in the right place for my mouth. But anyway, there we are. I'll put it there. That, that noise was me moving microphone. Uh-huh. Um, Corey Green just introduced the show. I'm Kevin Healy. We've also got Malcolm uh, McDonald in the studio this morning. Malcolm, um, we've had him on before a couple of times. Once I actually he... set up the microphones with great care. Oh, I'll did have you, okay. you know. <laughs> well, I just stuffed it up then. <laughs> well, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm, we had Malcolm on a few years ago, in fact, when he wrote the history of the FEDFA, the Federated Engine Drivers Union, and he was, yeah. uh, he was secretary of that union for a long time, many years. And... Uh, He's in this morning to talk about a recent trip he took to a number of places, including Greece, where I think he escapes Melbourne winter fairly regularly because his wife's Greek and there's a family property and he heads over there when it gets cold in Melbourne some years. Mm. But we'll get back to that shortly. Um, So, Malcolm, you're welcome, by the way, in this first rubbishy discussion we have to join in and try and set us straight and uh, make it sound like it's it's sensible at some stage. I'll do my best. (laughs) Well, we do our best, but we fail miserably week after week. Mm. Um, Do it for the six listeners. (laughs) We 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 did say that's right. We did say we'd have um, Kate Shaw on today, but she had a family wake yesterday. Following a, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there was a family bereavement, and uh, so we now got around in two weeks' time. In fact, to talk about general planning issues, um, but we have got a very good replacement because as we left the studio last week, in fact, Corey, um, there was a phone call, someone saying, uh, when are you going to have John Passend on again? And uh, as it turns out, we've now got John on today. He doesn't know he's a fallback, but he, but he, John, <laughs> John's on today. And um, But John, of course, is, those regular listeners will know, is a former Assistant Commissioner of Taxation in this country who now who always has, but argues very strongly that we should tax the rich and says that 40% of the top 100 companies in this, this country pay no tax whatever. And that's why he's and feeling the unemployment crisis. That's right, and we're going to discuss a number. He's been lecturing in tax law, etc. But uh, John's going to... There were two issues I rang him about because in the last couple of days there's been a couple. One is that Chevron paid $248 on a profit in Australia of $1.7 billion. I put it through the calculator. It's point naught 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 one four percent of their profits in tax. And they complain they that taxes are too high. Um, <laughs> $248 right. too high, aren't they? And the other one is in terms of, of, of corporate welfare, the government on, um, on the weekend or on Monday, Monday of the weekend, had a, uh, a meeting with a couple of uh, big capitalists, one the biggest beef grower in the world from Brazil and one the company that's just bought the, the port of Darwin to announce a $5 billion investment fund to to get to encourage companies to move in and develop the northern australia this is this developed northern australia rubbish they're going about and um so they're going to hand five billion to private companies the biggest private companies in the world mm-hmm. um, and i thought we'd talk to john about that as well so there you are it's a good way to start the day and yeah encouraging isn't it 
Speaking of the biggest companies in the world, oh, by the way, as a positive though, Corey, remember last year when you were in Brisbane for that heads of government thing that was mm. on up there? And you actually teed up for us and got involved in yourself an interview with a Canadian bloke, and we talked mm. about the pipeline from um, from from the west coast um, from Canada, Canada, yeah, Canada down to the US. But yeah. it, but in the last week, you might have noticed Obama has actually scotched it and he's actually knocked it off. So, I know, uh, and now he's taking credit for being environmentally yeah. conscious. Yeah, so that's good news, isn't it? That's a I positive. Just, I just, maybe I love how we can have such a turnaround right. so quickly. Oh, I care about I th- the environmental. I, I think our interview did it. Uh, and he said, he said, now America is one of the, one of the leaders in environmentalists. And I was like, no, you're 15, 20 years too late to be a leader yeah. in anything. Well, if they are, Look, the leaders go first, remember? That's right. If they are, the world's in a hell of a lot of trouble as well, but then it is, isn't it? Uh, mm. I'm going to pour myself a cup of tea. I'll just put it up in the one. you want a cup of this tea? Anyway, no, I think right, despite what Obama said, it's a, it's a great victory yeah. for a very, very big, diverse movement. Um, it is. It is. And that was particularly led by Native Americans. Yep. Yep. Um, and um, so that that was a real positive, and of course um, they would have guaranteed that despite the the terrible polluting stuff that went through it, it couldn't pollute anywhere else. It never burst or caused any problems nearby, as BHP would have guaranteed the Brazil people about the tailings dam at the mine that burst last week, and there's lots of people dead. And of course they're only mentioning dead, but they're not mentioning also all the um, all the people are now homeless and lost everything they own, etc., um, which also comes into it. But I was fascinated that yesterday the Financial Review had a, uh, an 18-paragraph story about it on its world, on its companies and markets page, which shows what, how they think about it. It's companies and markets, not individuals dying and being homeless page. Uh, and the 12th well, paragraph... being ruined page. Paragraph 12... Two people are reported dead with a further 28 missing, including 13 workers at the mine. However, there are fears the final death toll will climb. No mention of homeless or anything. That's the only 12th paragraph, 12th paragraph of 18 pars, the only one where they don't talk about the economic impact on the company um, and the share prices of the company and how, it's, how they might have to face all sorts of compensation, etc. So isn't that terrible? I want to put something out there, Kevin, that... Mm-hmm. Um, Destroying the environment has an economic impact for many people, especially people who live there. Yes, it does, actually. and That's that's fairly novel, isn't it? People who live there are impacted by environment. Well, it's quite a significant economic impact, given that everything really comes back to land. Yes. Land, clean water, you know. And in these areas in particular, the land is so critical to the people. and, Mm. um, And it gets stuffed up by these people who don't. His only concern is to, uh, and in fact, um, a couple of weeks ago we quoted the head of BHP, uh, Jack Nasser, saying that while they were uh, mining in a forest in Borneo or somewhere, and you know if they didn't do it, someone else would. It said that was his argument. Um, that's actually why okay I punch babies. And, yeah, that's right. That's right. But it, just similar, similar cars alongside that. In the last week, they've decided to stretch. But just if, you know, if we said to a, if we said to the electricity company or the gas company or, or water company, look, we want to actually extend the time we have to pay and, mm-hmm. and unilaterally make that decision. Well, you know, wow, um, they probably wouldn't agree actually. But 
BHP is pushing out its payment terms on 14 billion of supply contracts to 60 days from 30 days after a review found its existing deal was significant, etc., shorter than etc. While the move will improve its working capital, it'll also come as a blow to many of the company's 20,000 suppliers. Surprise, surprise! It's long had, but they were talking about taking it out to. Uh, to 90 or 128 days, but they've settled for 60. So they've just unilaterally said to suppliers, we're, only, we're going to pay you much more slowly than we have in the past, which is all very nice. I hate to contradict you, Kevin, but um, for anyone who's uh, maybe struggling a bit financially who's listening, electricity companies are actually really chill with extending the deadline for payment. Pro tip. Ah, yes, that's true, that's true. But <laughs> See, you, know, but you so can't unilaterally you can prior- say, I'm not going to pay it till then or something. You can prioritise other things. Uh, Telstra have just unilaterally doubled, uh, well, by 50% increased my phone account. Oh, that was was nice of them. (laughs) That's because you weren't around to use it. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I've had a $20 plan for years. Oh, right. And now it's 30 Oh, good. <laughs> that's, oh, that's well. They've got to, you know, you've got to move with the times, Malcolm. I mean, I mm. hope you're not going to complain about this. <laughs> but, but simultaneous to this, this week, while they've they've ruined they've, in Brazil, they've caused this massive environmental damage. And they do say, by the way, that the sludge and the the tailings, there's nothing in them that's dangerous. By the way, you were pleased to know they tell us that. So, which is why they didn't release it straight into the river. That's right. We're taking their word for it. Yeah. No, well, let's just. I wanted to hang on to it and have a look at it. Um, While they're also extending the time they pay, this week, this this is their big one for the week, BHP Billiton has responded aggressively to last year's industrial dispute at Port Hedland by axing its unionised tugboat provider, TK, and replacing it with a Queensland company that traditionally has a non-unionised workforce. BHP confirmed that Rivtow, a subsidiary of Riverside Marine, has won the contract, etc., um, and the, there was a you know the move as a blow to the existing tug workers and the three unions that ran last year's industrial campaign: the MUA, the Australian Institute of Marine and Power Engineers, and the AMOU, the Marine Officers. Uh, tug workers won improved annual leave entitlements. So they had a, you know they won better conditions, etc. Uh, BHP in, has in recent years pushed its contractors hard to lower their margins, and the miner said cost effectiveness was a factor in the TK decision. The contract has been awarded following a competitive tender process for BHP Billiton's largest tugboat fleet based on safety, capability and cost-effectiveness criteria, which is, you know, the workers get nothing. And it goes on, the tender process run, etc. Um, uh, and, the, and they've got a... They have, they have a... Uh, they have a... Um, like a, they have no competition whatever. They've got a monopoly. BHP holds the exclusive rights to operate tug services within Port Hedland, etc. So it's just knocked off the unionised labour. Did you know Queensland actually has... Um, quite a history in the maritime and many other industries of um, uh, non-unionised slave labour. I think BHB Billiton should talk to their shareholders about bringing them back. Leaping in on it, isn't it? Leaping in on it. Mm, Getting there anyway. Yeah. Your Uh, thoughts, Malcolm? Oh, well, just thinking of the, uh, excuse me, Chinese free trade agreement and uh, the use of Chinese labour. I see the uh, Senate passed that uh, China Free Trade Agreement, I think, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now, they say, the Labor Party say they are satisfied with safeguards, but <laughs> we'll see. Now, the question of non-unionised labour, uh, take the construction industry. John Holland is, as you know, uh, now owned by the Chinese and uh, a very big construction company. 
So you can see what's in prospect anyway if uh, cheaper Chinese labour can be introduced into Australia, mm. used on construction sites. Uh, certainly that would be uh, make things very difficult for the construction unions in this country. Yeah, and I mean, if... if I think the argument is if, if they're going to bring labour in, they have to pay the correct rates and the correct conditions, et cetera, et cetera, mm. which takes away any incentive to use cheap labour, of course. But that's got to happen because, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you know, there's a danger... I think there's always a danger with these arguments that it can become racist or something, which, it, you know, we're not being. But, but the point is that workers simply have to be paid the correct wages and conditions, which are always exploited of any way. I mean, just employing workers is exploiting them. Yeah, well, of course, there's also a very big difference between minimum wages in in Australia compared, uh, say, with site rates, etc. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And that's what's mm. got to happen. They've got to make sure that that's matched. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, yeah. that's going to be the big test. of yeah. the Chi- As far as uh, yeah. this aspect of the Chinese free trade agreement is concerned. Mm. Mm. Yeah, if Chinese workers come here, I want them to have proper wages, proper conditions, safety, everything. Well, there are already, of course, mm. a lot of Chinese workers here working on construction. Mm. They've come in probably with four, five, seven visas. Mm-hmm. But if they are on construction sites uh, where, which are unionised, mm. they are getting paid proper rates of pay and good rates of pay. It's good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on speaking of great rates of, rates of pay, a couple of headlines from recent weeks in the paper, um, going, going back to the last month or two, um, there was a headline that um, if colleges are dodgy, it's time to give them the boot. These are these private colleges that compete with TAFE but get lots of public money. Mm. And we know they run Mickey Mouse courses. If colleges are dodgy, it's time to give them the boot. That was in mid-October in the education page of the Financial Review. And then um, another one a few days earlier, government cracks down on dodgy private colleges. Yet this week in the education section, the headline is costly teachers make tape too pricey. Hmm. And the New South Wales government is pushing to reduce high labour costs in its TAFE colleges, warning that TAFE will continue to lose market share to private colleges if wages and conditions are not restrained. And they're now using the lower wages and conditions in these Mickey Mouse private colleges to try to force workers who won these wages and conditions to lower their wages and conditions. So it's just extraordinary. Mm. Not, no, it's not extraordinary. It's expected, but it's just, you know, that they, 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 on one hand, they're saying, yeah, these things are dodgy, but then they're saying they pay lower wages and conditions, so our workers are forcing us out. Mm. I had this friend who studied nursing at one of those dodgy institutions, which is a bit worrying in itself. And two years into the course, it was deregistered by the government. He just, he'd earned nothing. He had no qualifications. Mm. <laughs> had to start all the way back at the beginning. And then you can't. I mean, you can't get the government subsidies and grants that you can get to start fresh because you've already used them. Well, on he, a, never, on a course he never bothered. Did, yeah, whatever. I mean, you, you also lose whatever benefits you get from government when you start out because you've already started out. <sighs> that, that happens. That's something that the union complains about uh, in relation to the TAFE situation. Mm. Yeah. So it's uh, it ain't good. Um, we better go to Malcolm though very shortly. Right. Um, I just just thought I'd finish up with two very small items. One is that uh, another report's come out showing that the government's direct action uh, on climate change, the penalties that are hit 
you know, gov- companies that might over-pollute, whatever that means, mm. uh, will actually have no effect whatever. No one they expect will have to pay a penalty, so that's good news. And the, and the, uh, um, the, the other one I thought was interesting, a headline last week on the Smart Investor page last Wednesday of the Financial Review, Corey, the, the capitalists have woken up to us. We've been exposed. They've caught up. The headline is looking for solutions to city limits. <laughs> yes, they've caught up with us. They're going to send the police in, I bet. Yeah, we're gone. We're That's gone. That's the only this solution might, I can think this of. This might be the last program when I can hear those loud sighs of relief out there in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> Lock the doors, huh? <laughs> Okay, look, we'll take a break, come back and we'll talk to Malcolm about his uh, about Greece, but also where all, everywhere else he went. All right. Um, you're listening to City Limit, maybe for the last time. 3CR, 8.55am, the time is 9.18, and this is Fleet Foxes with Quiet Houses. That was Fleet Foxes with Quiet Houses, and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, or 3cr.org.au, City Limits. Radio and on City Limits. Earlier we got Malcolm McDonald in the studio and um, Malcolm uh, recently came back from Greece. We're going to talk about Greece specifically in a minute because you were there for the elections, weren't you, Malcolm? Yes, I was. But also before, but around the place generally. One of the many elections. But you also, on this... This time you were over in, in Europe, you went to, was it Poland and Germany you went to, um, you said? Yeah, that's right. Um, I went to uh, Warsaw in Poland for two nights. Mm. Uh, I went to Berlin, which is, a, after that, to Berlin, which is uh, five hours by train from Warsaw <laughs> for three nights, I think it was. And after that, uh, I went to Greece uh, to attend a wedding. Mm-hmm. One of those fat Greek ones. Yes, right, right, yes. There were 750 people there, by the way, despite the fact there's an economic crisis in Greece. And many of them were smoking. Mm, Smoking. Also, uh, I spent with my wife, Flora, a very, very interesting week in Crete, which I can say a few words about. Mm. But the reason I went to Warsaw was 60 years ago as a young member of the Eureka Youth League, the Young Communist League in Victoria... Mm. I went to uh, what was called the Youth Carnival for Peace and Friendship in Warsaw. And uh, whilst there, I met a young interpreter. He was about 25 at the time. Well, he's now 85. Mm. I was only 23 and now I'm 83. Mm. So you can see, time passes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> but it was very, very nice. It does, very it does nice. Michael, that is It was very nice. I have been to Poland a couple of times and I've uh, stayed with my friend. But this time we met him. Uh, he came to our hotel. My son was with myself and my wife, and uh, his daughter was there as well. Anyway, the next day, his daughter, himself, and uh, his granddaughter took us around Warsaw, which was very, very nice. Uh, I must say I'm very impressed with Warsaw as a city. Mm. Uh, The first time I went there, it was still subject to uh, war damage. Now it's certainly a very beautiful city. So it was Warsaw at the time. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's a very bad joke. I'll take that one back. Okay. <laughs> no, but you're right, though. It was certainly a, a war-ravaged country, and mm. uh, you wouldn't know that now, of course. And no doubt the same thing with Berlin. Uh, mm. We uh, had a good look around Berlin uh, for two days. Uh, I was very interested, of course. Uh, went to uh, Checkpoint Charlie, mm. where Checkpoint Charlie was. Uh, cobblestones now show you where the Berlin War was. It ringed. It ringed all of uh, West Berlin, of course, East Berlin. Mm. Uh, that, of course, uh, I think was uh, built in 1961 
I think it was 61. About then. There was a dreadful hit called West of the Wall that came out, a very pro-Western hit called West of yeah, the Wall. Yeah, a young Wall. communist friend of mine used to he t- turn that around. He said he used to sing East of the Wall, but anyway, mm. it didn't really matter. No. But mm. um, the, 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 the wall was put up, of course, because uh, the population of... Uh, uh, East Berlin was uh, leaving for the West and most of them or a lot of them were very um, highly educated people, people with skills. So the war was essentially put up because of that as far as I can understand it. And um, it came down in uh, 89, was it? It was Reagan period anyway. Yes, yeah, so I think it was yeah, 89, yeah. something like that, or 90. Thereabouts. But while I was there too, uh, I was very interested, of course, uh, remember that uh, at the end of the war all of Berlin was destroyed. All of Berlin just about was destroyed. And uh, like the Brandenburg Gate, uh, parts of it remained. And that's been rebuilt, the same as uh, most of the important buildings in uh, Berlin. Just about all of Berlin has been rebuilt. And that includes uh, the Bundestag, the Reichstag, all those places. Just looking just back on that, I think Reagan won in 80, didn't he? And he would have had to be out by 88, so it must have happened somewhere in there. I thought it was 89. Oh, yeah, it might, I mean, it might be 89. I mean, I might be getting my history all wrong. It's that very famous, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or they often play it anyway, um, shot of Reagan saying, Mr Gorbachev, yeah. tear down this wall. Yes. <laughs> anyway, it did come down. Yeah. It did come down. But uh, it was very interesting anyway, Berlin. Anybody who's uh, had any interest in the Second World War, for example, uh, to go to Berlin's a, a good place to visit. Uh, apart from anything else... Uh, I saw where the uh, Hitler's bunker was. Uh, in order not to make it a shrine, of course, you probably know this anyway, it's now a parking lot. <laughs> now a parking lot, yeah. Apparently they've uh, flooded it and filled it in with sand or something, but uh, they didn't mm. want it to be a shrine for tourists, of course. Yeah, or for new neo-fascists who might arise, I suppose. Well, that's right, and there are quite a few of those around mm. in Germany as well as uh, right throughout Europe too. And Greece. And Greece, I could say a few words about that. Yeah, the Golden Dawn Party in Greece. Mm. I think about it, new neo-fascists might be a tautology, but let's let's not go there. Neo-neo-fascists. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, apart from after that, on the 12th of September, uh, my son, uh, my wife Flora and myself attended uh, a wedding in uh, Kavala, uh, or outside of Kavala, which is a very nice city in northern Greece. On the seaside, uh, there was, as I said, 750 people attended. I'm pretty sure... Uh, that uh, the relatives of Flora who paid half the wedding would have had to have taken a loan out for it because it must have cost a fortune. Mm. Uh, And I know that they didn't have enough money to repair their car when we were there, so... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The wedding's more important. Yeah, well, that's right. You wouldn't want to get a divorce. (laughs) That's right. But what struck me about it, so many people, and um, so many people were smoking. Now, it is... The law says in Greece that you are not supposed to smoke in that such inside houses of entertainment or eating places inside. Mm. But uh, nobody's taking any notice Ignored. of it. That's right. In a place with 750 people. Mm. Now, in my latter years, I've developed a bit of asthma, and it, it is difficult to cope with. Yeah, yeah. And, for example, in Flora's village, Ligardia is the name of it, I, I like going to the cafeteria. I know a lot of people there. The trouble is I can't go now because they all smoke. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, it's a, it is a real problem, and I'm, you know, I support smoking bans everywhere, but anyway, yeah. yeah. That's right. But um, we had a very interesting week on Crete. Um, it's the biggest of the uh, many, many 
hundreds of Greek islands. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in Greece with a friend and uh, he in particular wanted to go to Crete so he could put a, to Heraklion, where he, he wanted to put a, a, a flower on the, on, the, on the grave of Nikos Kazantzakis, the Greek writer. Yes. Famous, he probably. Wrote, wrote Zorba. He wrote Zorba, the Greek, among mm. other, other mm. works. Yeah, mm. that's right. Very famous film, film result of the course. Mm. Anyway, um, we, didn't, we couldn't go to, to Crete at that time because we were flying from uh, Salonika to Athens and his ears popped and he wasn't game to take the, the next flight from, from uh, Athens to, uh, to Heraklion, to Crete, where, the, where Cousin Zaka's grave is. So anyway, we didn't get there and he was very disappointed. Anyway, I went to Crete, went to Heraklion and one of the five or six days we were there, I, we, we walked up, Flora and myself, my wife, we walked up to the grave of Cousin Zarkas, it's uh, overlooking the city. Anyway, I plucked a couple of wildflowers that were surrounding mm. the, the place there, and uh, on behalf of Tom Marshall, my old friend, he's dead now, I placed a couple of flowers on the grave of the famous right. and great man, so you did Nikos it on the cheap. Cousin you pinched, Zarkas. You pinched them from nearby, you did it on the cheap. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry well, about that. This, this brings us to the situation, speaking of doing it on the cheap in Greece. Now, you talked about, you, you mentioned that you were there for the election, but the, the level, I mean, you saw firsthand the impact of what's happening there in the current economic crisis. Well, uh, anecdotally, yes, and also with personal experience, um, I think importantly, for example, uh, 54%, well, officially, officially, 54% of Greeks are inadequately fed at the present time. Mm. Uh, 25% of children in Athens go to school hungry. Now, this shows you the level of uh, poverty that exists in present-day Greece. The official... uh, Unemployment rate is 25%. I believe it's probably higher than that. The official youth unemployment rate is 48%. But in a very big city uh, close to my wife's village, the name of the place is Ceres, there's 90,000 people there. It was always highly prosperous, highly prosperous. You've got youth unemployment of 60 to 80%. 60 to 80 percent. No, according to uh, people who live there, they say, look, there simply just are no jobs for young people. And that's not just the case in Ceres. It's the same Mm. everywhere that you talk to people about. Salonika, Athens. And the thing is, many of these uh, young people, of course, are university trained, university trained, uh, and they just can't get jobs. Now, uh, of course, this is also resulting in, in an inevitable brain drain yep. because those that can are taking the opportunity of Get out. getting out, going to places like Germany and so on, going to places like Germany and so on. Mm. It's you- always um, one of the worst inefficiencies of capitalism, in my opinion, that there's always uh, work to be done but no, no jobs. I'm sure that there's heaps of stuff that needs to be done in Greece. I mean, if people are going hungry... More food. Well, this is uh, one of the, this is a big contradiction mm. in what's happening. Um, you hear a lot about bailouts mm. for Greece, 
for example, when when uh, I was in Berlin, uh, we did this tour, and the tour guide said, "Greece is a bottomless pit." Greece is a bottomless pit. Now, he believes that Germany, for example, is giving Greece money. Now, the reality is that uh, now the German banks lent Greece a lot of money, quite irresponsibly. Everybody knew that Greece mm. was a bit of a basket case from the point of view mm. of... Paid it back. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Now, they should never have been allowed into the euro either, but that's another question we can talk about if you want to. But, for example... When Greece gets bailed out for its interest payments, what happens is the money might come from, say, the European Central Bank to pay the interest payments Mm. on behalf of the Greek government. The Greek government has to pay interest on that, possibly, I understand, about 5.5%. Now, as soon as that happens, the 5.5% interest plus the money that came to pay for the interest payments, that doesn't stay in Greece. It passes through Athens very quickly and disappears. Well, it just goes straight back to the vaults of the uh, European Central Bank. Now, the, as a consequence of all that, the uh, the indebtedness of Greece is increasing all the time. Mm. In fact, it's higher now than it was before the crisis started. And before the bailout started. That's right. Yeah. Now, unless there are big changes in what ha- the treatment of Greece and its debt, well, uh, the the country has no future whatsoever. Mm. And you mentioned to me the other day um, uh, someone you knew, a woman who had been forced to go to reduce her hourly rate to four, uh, four and a half euros. I think you said an hour. No, less than that. Well, whatever. Just <laughs> that story because it's interesting that work. And you mentioned that even even so, workers are queuing up for those sort of jobs. Oh, that's right. Now, this particular lady, this particular lady is a relative mm. of my wife. Now, she works in a government uh, institution uh, as a cleaner. Uh, Prior to the crisis, she was getting nine euros an hour. She now gets two and a half euro Uh an hour. She works eight hours a day and gets paid for four. And she's Mm. also expected to use her language skills. She was brought up in Germany for tourists. Now... Mm. That is now actually she's getting one point two five euro an hour, and unfortunately for the lady, she also smokes. So half her daily rates of pay would go in smoking. So leave that aside. But uh, what's happening to that lady is an example of what's happening right throughout Greece. Like the the, the minimum wage in Greece legally is six hundred and eighty euros a month, a month. What does that work out to an hour? Oh well, that's forty yeah. hours a forty hours a week. What's that? Uh, Divide it by one hundred and sixty. It's about um, three or something. Something like that. Three that's or, right. Three or four. But the the reality is, though, a lot of workers are getting paid less than that. Yeah. There's no real check on what wa- workers are receiving in wages. Uh, four hundred, five hundred is not unusual a month. Now, interestingly enough, too, um, if you go to a supermarket in Greece, you'll find that the prices are very similar to here, mm. almost the same, mm. uh, except some things are cheaper. Alcohol is cheaper. You oh, pay... Uh... I might move. <laughs> Lubricates the system of, of poverty, I reckon. That's right. But uh, the, the situation anyway in Greece is very dire for workers, mm. even if they're working. And uh, like there's one, one bakery in Athens, big bakery chain, 
they reportedly are giving away one-third of of what they bake each day to the poor. Mm. It's a very, very serious situation. And is there, I mean, we've got to go to John Passon, but is there a, very briefly, is there a, what's, the, what's the way out for all this? Well, uh, Germany was, following the Second World War, uh, Germany uh, owed a lot of money in reparations to all the countries that they occupied and damaged. But because uh, Germany was required to be an, a str- strong economically in the fight against communism, uh, Germany was given special treatment. Uh, their war reparations were halved, and uh, then for the half remaining, they were given 30 years to pay them off. Now, that, is the, that sort of treatment is the only way that Greece can recover from this terrible situation that they are in at the present time. Mm-hmm. And some form of debt relief for Greece, uh, in substitution for the um, austerity that's been forced on the Greek people, uh, is the, the only way out for, the, for, mm-hmm. for Greece in the future. Yeah, we might do a follow-up because we really should talk about the way Syriza are sold out as well after the election, but that's another question, another time. Um, all right, look, thanks, Malcolm. We'll say around that because you're welcome to join in this discussion with John Passant. I'm sure you'll find some of it interesting. Some of it. <laughs> and uh, we'll take a break, come back and talk to John about issues. All right. Um, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. The time is 9.38. And this is Dead Prayers with Warpath. You're listening to oh, City Limits, <laughs> 3CR 855 AM, and the time is 9.42. <laughs> right, as Corey turns him on, because you anyone else has been around on. Um, um, very good, and we've yes. got John Passant on the line. John, of course, as we keep pointing out on the show, is a former Assistant Commissioner of Taxation, but don't turn up, don't go away yet, he's better than that. <laughs> um, and, John, I, I just thought this morning, we're going to talk a couple of things I wanted to talk about, but I thought we'd open by admitting mistakes, and I'm going to blame you for me making the mistake but I think you I think you should be big enough to at least accept accept an apology from the Prime Minister because no less a person than our Prime Minister has pointed out that what we thought people used the places like the Cayman Islands for was to avoid tax to evade tax to dodge tax to limit tax and yet the Prime Minister's pointed out they only use it to maximise their tax obligations so <laughs> were, were you wrong? Obviously, I'm wrong. They want to pay more tax. The reason you put all of your money in the Cayman Islands, your million-dollar investments in the Cayman Islands, is to pay more Australian tax. That's absolutely right. I (laughs) couldn't think of any other reason for doing it. Oh, except, of course, that you also avoid US tax and you avoid global tax. And then when you bring the money back to Australia, you don't pay any tax on it either as a dividend. So, wonderful investment. Um, and it's interesting that despite the fact that I've written on this and said, well, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister says he's paid his appropriate amount of tax on the Cayman Islands income, the appropriate amount of Australian tax, I, I say, well, release the details and let us know how much, in fact, he really did pay on that uh, on that uh, income in the Cayman Islands, but yeah, I was going to. That was my next question because they were, they, they could well be an element of, of being disingenuous because he talks about paying a full tax on the profits, but do all the profits land in Australia? Of course. Well, if they're reinvested around the globe rather than coming back to Australia, um, some of them might be caught through what's called. Um, controlled foreign corporations law, but I'd have to see the details to know whether that was the case. But in any event, uh, he could clear all of this up by just saying, here are the details of my money in the Cayman Islands, earning about, uh, according to most estimates, about 20% return on investment, untaxed in the Cayman Islands, untaxed anywhere in the world, until it comes through to Australia. Now, 
there are a whole range of different mechanisms for bringing it back into Australia, which mean it could well come back um, partially tax-free, uh, fully tax-free. We don't know. We'd have to see the arrangements to, mm. to know that. So why doesn't the Prime Minister, who evidently is all about transparency and equity, why doesn't he release the details? Let us know really what the tax situation is and how much his effective tax rate on that income is. We have his word for it, John. Um, oh, well, yes, the... and uh, of course, yeah, I believe uh, every politician who says, well, whatever they say, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure it's true that he did pay the appropriate amount of tax. Yes, of course. They... But Which, according to capitalists, is the least possible. <laughs> yes, and also, what's the appropriate amount of tax in these circumstances? Is a 1% tax rate? Or is it like an um, average tax rate for people on the on the average wage of 22%. God, you're cynical, John. You really are cynical. Look, the, um, the, I'm, I've got a feeling that the great, the large US-based um, resource company Chevron, which is currently destroying Barrow Island off Western Australia quite nicely, um, it, um, it must wish it, it actually had invested in the Cayman so it could maximise its tax because on 1.7 billion profit it was announced this week, it paid... $248 tax, which I calculated at point naught 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 one four percent Well, I'm glad you did the calculation. I, sh- I, sh- I should point out that's actually its US tax bill, not its Australian tax bill. So we need to be careful here when we're talking about Chevron, but it does give you an example of what it's likely doing in Australia as well. And I say that because... Uh, in October, there was a federal court case involving Chevron in which Chevron, um, one of the tax arrangements that Chevron's involved in, was held uh, not, uh, was, was attacked in the federal court by the ATO and the federal court upheld the ATO position, which means that now Chevron's paying or has to pay about $250 million in tax for this arrangement. Mm. And there are ongoing investigations by the ATO according to newspaper reports and, and by a submission that Chevron put to the Senate, which indicate that its other arrangements are also being investigated. So it's not just um, in Australia that Chevron is obviously doing things to try and avoid tax. It's also uh, from those figures that you, you just mentioned, the 248 US dollars that it pays on its 1.7 billion US dollars in the US. Yeah, uh, uh, uh- and of course, the way they do it is by intercompany loans, where they charge interest rates way above the norm, uh, but they're paying it to themselves. But yes. and it becomes tax that that therefore lowers the the official profit, of course, and also the way they the way they do it, it in us both in Australia and the US, it ends up being tax free both ways. Yes, and if you look at the arrangements, I won't go into them in in, in great detail, but for example, the arrangement that the federal court in Australia knocked out and said was not tax effective and as a consequence means that Chevron now has a bill for 240 something, uh, $270 billion in total, I think. Um, that's basically profit shifting, which means that um, the Australian company has borrowed from an offshore-related company, a Chevron company offshore. Um, that Chevron company offshore got the funds at 2% and has charged the Australian company 9% interest on that loan. In other words, and then Chevron claims that 9% as a deduction against mm. its profits in Australia. 
so that it reduces its Australian profits and increases the profits offshore. But those profits offshore will be, you know, tax haven or a, a low tax country like Singapore. So these arrangements are typical of most major international companies. Google has similar arrangements. Uh, Apple has similar arrangements. So you see, when you look at their global arrangements, the amount of tax they pay uh, in most countries around the globe is fairly low. Um, in the one or two effect percentage um, tax rates, despite the fact that in Australia the the company, the headline company tax rate is 30%. What sort of an incentive does the Cayman Islands have to um, be a tax haven? Well, there are a whole range of tax havens, um, but the OECD has launched uh, a program to try and counter, counteract tax havens and their use. But the incentives for places like uh, the Cayman Islands, also, Vanuatu, a whole range of other countries, Bermuda and so forth, is um, that they get the investment flowing through them. So they get some spin-off in the sense of they charge fees for these investment funds to set up there. So it actually is important for their, depending on which tax haven we're talking about, important for their economies to have large capital funds invested there especially US pension funds who invest in the Cayman Islands, UK UK funds, um, City of London, the biggest tax haven in the world, by the way, um, uses uh, places like the Cayman Islands to, to route income and make it tax-free in the UK. Um, a whole range of different companies around the globe, international companies, and some of the estimates are that there are about up to uh, $32 trillion held in tax havens around the world. Now, to give you an idea of how important that is, the GDP of the US per year is about $16 trillion. So it's double the production of the US every year is held in tax havens around around the globe. I thought, you know, from reading the mainstream papers, that when uh, rich capitalists got money that they automatically invested it. <laughs> well, it depends on the nature of the investment. Uh, you can take a, take a look at... Um, Mining companies in Australia before before the boom went into decline, or before we lost the boom in 2011-2012, the uh, the mining companies were reinvesting in Australia. But of course, they're making profits on that investment. But it's the profits that they shift out of Australia, and you can see that with mining companies, they set up hubs in Singapore to do their marketing. Now, why would you set up a hub in Singapore to market your your goods, sorry, your your resources to China. I mean, you could do that just as well from Australia, and the answer is they do it to avoid Australian tax and reduce Australian tax, and the tax rate in Singapore might be a special deal with the Singapore government of 1%. So the investment might occur, but the profit on that investment is shifted around the globe. There's a wonderful um, uh, statement by... um, the head of Google in in relation to this about shifting profits around the globe. And he says something to the effect of, well, you know, there's nothing surprising about this. This is capitalism. I'm just looking to make the best return for my investors that I can and for my company. And the biggest profit I can make is where I reduce tax. It's not rocket science. It's the way capitalism works. And I think that encapsulates the thinking of most major multinational companies, that tax is just a cost to them, and so reducing tax is a benefit to capitalism itself and to their own particular version of capitalism, to their own company. Chevron this week said it does abide by a stringent code of business ethics, so one can only imagine what would happen if it didn't. 
<laughs> well, I think you have to be careful. What are business ethics? What's the main driver for business? Yes, it's something about <laughs> something with oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> and, and the best way to make more profits, or one of the best ways to make better profits, is to reduce your tax cost, in inverted commas. Now, most of us, ordinary workers, see tax as not a cost, but as a contribution to a better society, whereas it's interesting that companies like Chevron, like Google, like Apple, you didn't name them, like Fortescue, Minerals Group, like Clive Palmer's companies, uh, like BHP, they all see tax as a cost rather than a contribution to society. And I think that's the basic problem. And you see that flow through, of course, with the mining companies, which are not only paying very small amounts of effective tax rate in Australia, they're also, as you pointed out in the introduction, destroying the Australian environment. And so you have a, a, a conflation here of, well, we need to make profit. We need to do that by by destroying the Barrier Reef or by digging up um, the Barrow Island, land. in this case, the Gorgon development on yeah, Barrow the Gorgon, Island. Stairs, the yeah. Gorgon development. And, oh, on the other hand, we're also not going to make much of a contribution to Australian society for the benefits of destroying the environment. So mm. it's a double-edged sword, and, of course, it uh, represents the same drive, the drive for profit rather than to satisfy human need. I was walking through um, the city the other day, and I was thinking about how nice it is that we're so close to the Great Barrier Reef when... Um, Cement's made out of coral. <laughs> well, I think one of the things I keep on thinking about about the Great Barrier Reef is uh, see it in the next few years before it disappears. You know, I just think the, yep. the whole process that's going on there, both the mining and also the process of farming that's, and, and and whatever onshore that has and mining onshore that is now leaching into the Great Barrier Reef and destroying the the. In the the essence of the Great Barrier Reef and the ability of the Great Barrier Reef to continue to be reproduced. So I just think, you know, get a chance to see the Great Barrier Reef now before it's destroyed. And we're already hearing more generally about the environment and the fact that we've reached the one percent, the one degree rather level of uh, global warming against the benchmark, and we're well on the way for three or four percent and I think when is this madness going to end and the madness is not just around tax avoidance it's just about the destruction of the economic the, the not the economic system the environmental system which, which enables is the, basis the economic for the... system to live yeah. exactly mm. yeah yeah the um because if we flip that coin and we go from tailings to smart heads or something on the coin um, the other side of that is that apart from not paying taxes they also demand to get the taxes other people pay back given to them, and just this week there was a, a there was a press doing in the top end, so to speak, this government pushing to develop northern Australia, where um, they've announced a five billion concessional loans uh, program to big companies to develop in northern Australia, and the biggest, the Brazil-based biggest um, beef producer in the world, JBS, was there with the minister at the time as was the new owner of the Darwin port who wants to now open up resources in the north to put through their own port. So here we have five billion virtually being handed to business. So what happens to market forces in that sort of situation? <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, governments are all in favour of market forces until they think, oh, look, we really do need to help capital here to do uh, something like expand the... Northern Australia. Now, most studies of the expansion of Northern Australia show that it's not feasible, mm. except in certain circumstances uh, around some agriculture and some some mining, although with the collapse of the mining boom, even the mining uh, 
the mining, the, the, the question about whether mining is now feasible, to a large extent in, nor, in northern Australia, is going to be a, a, a debatable question. But what is this funding for? The North Australia Infrastructure Facility, and it's going to fund airports, ports, roads, rail, energy, water and communications infrastructure. But hang on, that won't be for the benefit of of the 5% of the Australian population who live there. That'll be for the benefit of the big companies to move their agriculture and their resources from the middle of nowhere, or rather from Aboriginal land, occupied Aboriginal land, to the ports to then send off to um, Southeast Asia, for example, in terms of um, the resource exports or around the globe in terms of agricultural exports. And so it's all about giving concessional loans to big business who could afford to do this anyway. I mean, what's, why is the driver to give $5 billion to big business in concessional loans when at the same time you've got Christian Porter, the Minister for Social Services, saying the $17 billion we spend on disability services hmm. is a burden? I mean, seriously, $17 billion on disability services is a burden? No, it's not. It's a, it's a requirement, a moral obligation on Australians to try and support people who have got uh, some sort of disability. And that's they're acting like people with disabilities make absolutely no contribution to society, and that's total, utter bullshit. Yes, and I don't care whether they make a contribution, an economic contribution or not. I think they make a contribution by being human beings. Yeah. And, and that $17 billion is well spent. Whereas but, I, I mean, I didn't mean an economic contribution, just any sort any of contribution, contribution, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. John, and, sadly, go on, yeah, so to finish your point, because we're out of time, unfortunately. Well, I've only just started. You <laughs> I know, I know. We, we were running late. We, got, we, we stopped up. We talked too much as ourselves. Oh, we're well, stupid. But look, yeah. we, we will get you back soon, because you, I'll get... I'll boost your ego. Last week when we came out of the studio, there was a phone call from someone saying, when are you getting John Passend on again? So there you are. You've got a fan out there. I'm I'm, I'm glad I made that call. Okay, John, look, thanks for your time this morning. And we will get you back shortly. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks for the call. Bye-bye. John Passant there, as we say, as a former... Any wonder he's no longer an assistant commissioner for taxation. They woke up to him. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Corey, thanks and thanks, thank Malcolm. Malcolm, look, say good. Tell people next week is... What's next week? It's um, housing, housing. Tell people next week it's housing and thank Corey for doing a great job pushing buttons. Well, uh, next week on City Limits, it's uh, dealing with housing and thank you very much, Corey, for doing such a wonderful job. Thank you, thank you. All right, um... 3CR, City Limits, 9.59, and this is Rebel Diaz with Revolution Has Come. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.